The New Testament reading is Matthew 18, verses 1 through 20. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The word of the Lord. and hope it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through the book of Matthew and before we turn to this text let us turn to the Lord in prayer God our Father thank you for your word thank you for Christ who we see in your word and Lord I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to the intentions this passage and that through it Lord you would apply the gospel of Jesus Christ more deeply to our heads to our hands and to our hearts and it's in Christ's name that we pray, in the expectancy, Lord, of, of the power 
of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in his adoration of the wisdom of Christ, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says the following. With each of his answers, Christ simply rises above the conflict in question, and he refuses to be bound by human alternatives. And we see this in the present passage. Disciples come to Christ and they ask, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples are worried about the pecking order. They're sizing each other up. They want to know who is the greatest and who is the least. But Christ will have none of it. He simply refuses to answer this question because he rejects the whole premise behind it. Jesus, what must we do to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, how can I be better than that guy? Jesus, how can I be on top? And so what does Jesus do? We read, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples must become like children. They must learn to receive. Children are dependent upon the love and the care of their parents. The child's basic disposition is, or should be allowed to be, that of receiving the loving gifts of their mother and father. And the child should be able to trust their parents fully. The child should receive life and nourishment and care and protection and maturation from the parent. To be a child is, or should be, to receive with trust. This is what the disciples are to become. And this is ultimately, as we will see, what it means to be human. To receive and to trust to be a child. As is often and not unhelpfully said, this is about being childlike, not childish. Our culture's obsession with youth is childish. Wonder and amazement and trust in God and all that he has done, that is childlike. So take note, Christ begins this block of teaching. Christ begins everything that follows with this focus upon children. He appeals to the child as the pattern, the paradigm, the standard of what it means to be human. And so Jesus fiercely defends childhood and the kind of full and complete trust that children are especially prone to have. Jesus tells us, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If you take away a child's chance to be a child, if you force them to develop a disposition other than the trusting and reception of love and care, then Jesus warns us in the harshest of terms, we lie under condemnation. At least one implication of this is that we should make certain that in our communities, children can be children. Childhood can be taken away from children in many ways, and all of these ways are ways that the church should seek to heal and rectify. 
Childhood can be taken away through economic disparities and exploitation, broken homes, absentee fathers, overworked parents who are never home because of career ambition, overworked parents who are never home because minimum wage simply can't pay the bills, or childhood can even be taken away by something that we are prone to call success. For instance, a scholar and writer, Matt Freeney, Feeney, he penned an article in the New Yorker a few years ago, and he chronicled the way that the admissions process to elite human universities has changed both the shape of parenting and also the shape of growing up. For instance, at the time that Feeney was writing this article, one particular thing that admissions boards loved to see was that the student had started their own nonprofit. Yes, they wanted a minor to have started a nonprofit organization. And this application process has creeped into more and more of life as an alternative to the traditional application, which the student generally completes around the start of their senior year of high school. Feeney notes that many of the most prestigious schools and all of the Ivy League schools offer what is called a coalition app that takes a portfolio form. From ninth grade onwards, the student starts uploading materials. And so the whole of their high school experience becomes one long application process. Four years of being scrutinized and sized up. No one is meant to bear this weight, and certainly not the youngest in our midst. Yet this is the load that kids and teens are constantly bearing. For instance, reflecting on the harsh criticism that's often lobbed at younger generations, literature professor Alan Noble says that his experience with his students is actually quite different than what we often hear in the media. And we should take this to heart given our own location on a university campus. Noble writes, when a young person stops coming to class, binge watches friends for 36 hours, and can't seem to get out of bed, it's almost entirely because the student cares too much, not too little. They don't choose to tap out of life because they think winning is meaningless. They tap out because they are taught that winning means everything, and they can't envision a path to winning. If you live in a hyper-competitive society where you know you can't possibly compete against those with biological or economic advantages, why bother playing the game? Rather than failing to accept responsibility, they find an alternative space to pursue existential justification. If I can't compete in graduate school, I might be able to compete in a video game. If I can't win the love of a desired spouse, I can find a sense of belonging in porn or, roman or romance stories. In this system that Noble lays out, there are clear winners and losers, and by these standards, most children have already lost before they even realize they are in an existential competition for what seems their very meaning and worth. If you didn't spend your summer starting a nonprofit, if you didn't realize that starting your college application your senior year of high school is already three years too late, if you didn't attend the right preschools as a toddler, then what is communicated to you is that chances are you are going to fail in life. And so, why not just give up? This is not childhood. This is not receiving and trusting. This is pure and simple competition. 
This is the question of how I can be the greatest in school, in wealth, in reputation, in prestige, in physical attraction, and sure, why not, also greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus refuses to let this mode of life define the kingdom of heaven, and so he refuses to let this competitive, dog-eat-dog mentality define the human person. We are to become like children. This is how to be human. And this helps us understand the chain of reception that Jesus traces out. He says, whoever receives one child in my name receives me. Last week in our sermon on the transfiguration, we, we, we spoke of what the disciples saw. Again, they saw the person of the divine son. And who is the son? Again, the Son is that distinct personal mode of being God by receiving the divine nature from the Father and then turning back to the Father in the love of the Holy Spirit. The Son receives and turns back in love. The Son's very person is a gift received from the Father. And again, as we talked about last week, since all of creation was made through the Son, through the Word, through the divine Logos, all creation bears the pattern, the logic, the grammar of the person of the Son. Just as Jesus is to and from the Father in love, so too is creation from and to God in love. We receive our being from God, and we are meant to direct redirect all of ourselves back to God in loving adoration and worship and praise. This is what it means to properly be creaturely and more specifically to be properly human. We must turn to God. Again, Christ tells us, turn and become like children. Or as Paul tells us in Romans 11, for from God and through him and to him are all things. Jesus the Son is from and to the Father, so all things in creation are from and to God, including and especially humans. To rehearse a, an illustration that we used last week, the Son is like a beautiful landscape and humanity is like a picture of this landscape. When we are actually in the landscape, we see the depth and the width and the height. We smell the leaves, we feel the breeze, we taste the air, we hear the wind. When all of this is transposed onto a two-dimensional picture, we, we, we certainly see the resemblance and we see how the picture reflects and images the landscape. But we know this is a picture of something far greater and far grander. We are the picture and the sun is the actual breathtaking reality of this beautiful landscape. This is why when the Son becomes human, he lives the perfect human life, the perfect life for which he was always the archetype, the pattern, the mold. And this reality helps us understand Jesus' instructions. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. To receive a child in the name of Christ is to receive the logic, the grammar, the pattern of the Son's very person. The grateful and loving and trusting receiving of the child is a powerful picture of the sons receiving from and turning to the father. To receive the child is to receive the who, 
the very person of Christ, whom the child uniquely represents and reflects and images, turn and become like children. Just as the Son is to and from the Father, just as he turns to the Father, so we, all of us, must turn to God in childlike love and trust and joy. And this is no knock to our dignity. If it's not an affront to the Divine Son, it's certainly not an affront to us. And so, what does this mean here in this congregation? Well, we must be certain that we are receiving children in the name of Christ. If this church is not a place where children are warmly welcomed and gratefully received, then we are not a community that is rightly receiving Christ himself. We don't have a big church. It's entirely possible to know everyone who attends here regularly. And I see this as a great benefit. And so ask yourself, do you know the names of all of the children in this congregation? They need you. They need the whole church to be fully nurtured in the faith. And remember, you made a vow to do just that at their baptism. It can be difficult for adults and kids to have conversations, but often this is because adults are not willing to stick it out through one-word answers or awkward silences. But be a living example to our kids. Show that their relationship with you is not based on them impressing you or proving their worth. We're not a college application board. But that relationship rests simply on the fact that we are all a part of God's family, that we have all been freely given what we can never earn, both in our creation and in our salvation. For instance, if a child grows up in this congregation, if they move somewhere else for college, and if at that time the only Christian adults they know well in this church are their own parents, then we have failed them greatly. But there's more. Kids and teens, you must also make the effort to be known. Don't run away from adults. Think of questions right now even that you can be asking an adult after this service. Kids and teens, let yourself be received by the congregation. This can go both ways. And so a true test of the church's community is how deeply loved and known are the children in its midst. If a church is receiving children well, then we know it is receiving Christ because it is prizing those whose very form of life, children, bear a special resemblance to the receiving that is the Son's very person. If a church can't welcome and nourish and mature the children in their midst, then it's a church that does not understand that absolutely everything we have is gift. Think about the good things in your life. If you think that you are the primary reason that you have them, because of how hard you've worked or how well you've done, you're wrong. Think about the opportunities and advantages that you have been born with. Think about the things that have just kind of come together in an uncanny way through no planning of your own. If you think these things are your due, you will never see them rightly. Let that truth humble us and fill us with childlike gratitude for absolutely everything that we have. 
Let us always steward what we have well and let us do it with the utmost diligence. But we also need to remember that what we steward is always and only gift. In a fallen world, everything outside of hell is a gift. We must learn to say with the Apostle Paul, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not received? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We have to let the children teach us in this. We have to learn from the children in this. And this brings us to one of the stranger parts of the present passage. After stressing the importance of being childlike and the importance of receiving children in his name and the very importance of childhood, Christ says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What exactly does Jesus mean here? Remember what the disciples saw during the transfiguration. The veil was lifted and they saw the divine person of the Son himself in his divine glory and being. They saw the very goodness that makes all good things good. They saw the very truth that makes all true things true. They saw the very beauty that makes all beautiful things beautiful. But remember, this sight was mediated through the human face of Christ. One day in the resurrection, in the life to come, we will look upon God directly, seeing the very person of the Son directly. But not yet. Our eyes must be strengthened so that this infinite blindness, or sorry, infinite light does not blind us. However, there is one kind of creature who even now enjoys this rapturous delight. When we speak of humanity sinning in the Garden of Eden, we often speak of all of creation falling into futility as the created world experienced the effects of the curse. However, this isn't exactly right. There is one part of creation that never experienced a fall. One part that knows no sin. There is already one knowing and loving creature that has received the fullness of God's promise for it. The good, unfallen angels. And so, in a way that we cannot yet do, these angels look upon the very face of God. First of all, we should take heart from that. Even in our fallen world, with all of its corruption and evil, there is a whole wonderful society of creation that has not felt the death and darkness and decay of sin. This hopeful dynamic is, is well captured in a scene from the Lord of the Rings. As Frodo and Sam make their march through Mordor to Mount Doom, as they begin to lose heart in a dark and evil land that seeks to corrupt and pervert all that is good, Sam looks up at the night sky, and we are told, There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark peak high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. 
For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. This is the same shaft of light that should pierce our hearts as we think about the good and unfallen angelic host. But why would Christ here speak of their angels? Does he mean that each little one, each child has their own special guardian angel? I don't think that's what the passage is telling us here. First of all, in speaking of little ones, I believe that Christ here is is no longer speaking specifically of, of children. He's made a transition and he's speaking of all of those who have, at the child's example, become childlike, who have learned to receive all as a gift. Little ones in this section refers to Christians, to those who have turned and become like children. Secondly, we can understand the phrase, their angels more broadly too, referring to to all of us as Christians. Augustine, writing on this passage, says this, The angels are ours because they have begun to have us as their fellow citizens. They are ours because they stand there welcoming, welcoming us into the city of God. That is, the angels love us and long for the day when we can fully join them in their own worship of God. They're very looking upon the face of God in absolute joy and rapture. As Augustine writes, they love us, and they want us to be blessed along with them. Does the beauty of this smite your heart as it did Sam? There is a whole society, a whole host of unfallen creation that loves you as only a pure and perfected heart can, and that longs for you to join them in their great and unceasing joy. And just as angels ministered to Christ in Matthew 4 as he fasted in the wilderness, so too, and in ways that we can't fully understand, do the angels minister to us in the wilderness of our good but fallen world. This is the world that Scripture invites us into. It is the real world, and it is teeming with wonder and enchantment. This is why we must become little ones, to keep that sense of wonder and trust and to believe and to receive the wonderful realities of Scripture. And this helps us understand what Jesus means when he tells us that when one of the little ones goes astray, there is more rejoicing and it's being found than the 99 in the 99 that never wandered off. What is Christ saying here? Well, biblical scholar Frederick Bruner is helpful. He says this in his own commentary on the passage. He writes, Jesus is trying to convert us to the importance of the statistically unimportant. Jesus' command is again, think little. This quiet command of littleness, which can be heard under and behind every story in the chapter, is the secret of the Christian ethic of community. If we ourselves are to become little ones, we must be focused on the littleness of life. For instance, you cannot disciple 99 people really well, but you can disciple one 
maybe two, maybe even three people really well. And so who is one little one that you as a little one can invest in? Who can you take a special interest and care for? Who is one of the 100 in this room that you could meet with regularly? We should invest in our entire community. But on top of meeting 10 people for coffee, let us also meet one person for coffee 10 times. Life is rightly lived in littleness. And this littleness brings us to the final part of today's passage. Jesus' instruction for confronting fellow Christians who have truly sinned against you. First, Jesus tells us that we, could, we should confront that person privately. And if there is a refusal to repent and move toward reconciliation, then we should bring along two fellow Christians who know and love both of us. If the refusal continues, bring it publicly to the church. And at this church, the first step would be to bring this issue to the session, to the board of elders. From there, the question of church discipline can be raised. And if you believe that the church has not handled the issue rightly, you can take it to the Iowa Presbytery. Or from there to the General Assembly, which covers the whole PCA denomination. The logic here is a series of church bodies that can hold each other to account. Pastors, elders, everyone. Everyone can be a called sorry, everyone can be called to account in this system. No one is above the need and the deep love of admonishment here. And again, there is a place for church discipline. If a person who has truly and painfully sinned against another refuses to repent, then there is a point where the church should remove the person from the fellowship of the congregation. But hear me, through it all, the hope is always toward the aim of reconciliation and restoration. The aim is always to welcome that person back into the fellowship of the church. And towards that end, what Christ is stressing here is a kind of disposition. Remember, Christ begins, this block, sorry, Christ begins this block of teaching with the command to turn and to become like children, to humble ourselves with the humility of a child. And this frames Christ's instructions for loving confrontations, for loving admonishment. He speaks here of a brother, a brother sinning against you. The implication is that we are siblings, brothers and sisters of the same father, that we are children, that we are the little ones of God, that we are the family of God. Theologian Livio Molina is helpful here. He tells us, only the family allows the person to be educated in the logic of gift. Again, to the child, everything should be gift. For the child, everything should be received. Molina tells us only in the family do persons come to know themselves as someone to be welcomed and not as a thing to be possessed. In this sense, confrontation is never to possess the other person in any way. It's not to exercise our control or manipulation or self-interest over them. No, it is a part of welcoming them. 
welcoming them as fellow children, as little ones in the family of God. It is family training in the logic of gift. And so admonishment should be a great act of love. Believe me, it is much easier to simply let a brother or sister continue in sin because it would be painful or awkward or tense or uncomfortable to address the situation directly. But this is not loving. I remember once talking with a good friend after he'd had a hard conversation with fellow Christians who had treated him very harshly and unfairly. And my friend was actually weeping And I thought he was doing so because of the hard things that they said to him about him. And and that absolutely would have been an understandable reaction. But he told me that, no, I'm sad because what they are doing to themselves. I'm sad because of what they are doing in their own hearts as they engage in this kind of behavior. In Christian confrontation of this sort... There must always be a deep, deep sadness at the effect of sin in the life of the other. Sin is self-destruction. Sin is the creature's own unmaking of itself. And so sin should make us weep for the sinner. And so when we confront a fellow brother or sister, we absolutely must be sure that we are weeping and grieving for the effect of sin in their life. This is why we confront. Not to possess them in any way, but to welcome them, to love them, to help them grow in the logic of gift. And of course, all the while, we are deeply searching our own hearts for the ever-present presence of sin. Again, the logic of human life is that of receiving the gifts of God, and especially the gift of God himself. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas gives us a helpful image here. uh, Aquinas compares us to buckets. He says, God is like a rushing river, giving all of himself to us in Christ. However, we can only receive God according to the size of our buckets. The bigger our buckets, the more of God we can receive, which is to say the more of God we can enjoy. And so here is the whole purpose of the human life essentially boiled down to one image. What we need to do is make our buckets bigger. This means that our enjoying of God, our receiving of God, is not limited by God, but by us. If we are in Christ, we have been given all of God. And so when we see our brother and sister sinning, we see them making themselves small. We see them making their buckets small. In Christian confrontation and admonishment, we are working to help them receive the gift of God in Christ Jesus. We are helping them, and they are helping us to use our words rightly, our time rightly, our money rightly, our influence rightly, all of the many blessings that we have received rightly, so that they and we can make our buckets bigger, so that we can enjoy more and more of God. Growth in the Christian life just is learning to receive more fully what has already been given to you in Christ Jesus. Growth in the Christian life is learning how to receive the full gift of Christ's salvation. And this is a spiritual discipline. This is the killing of sin. Sin steals while faith receives. 
Sin asserts itself as an autonomous and arrogant adult, while faith humbles itself like a child. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this phrasing should remind us of what Christ told us back in Matthew 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Christ is saying that no mere human, and of course Christ is no mere human, but no mere human has done a better job of following the ethical commands of God than has John. John the Baptist has done this more fully than anyone else. Yet Christ tells us that the, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than all of John's efforts. What does this mean? It means that salvation, just like our creation, is a gift. To be great in the kingdom of heaven is to be like a child. It's to receive, and what we must receive is the salvation of Christ Jesus. Only by receiving Christ's gift did John and do we enter the kingdom. And what is this gift? It's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus just is our salvation. By faith that knows and loves Christ, by faith that receives Christ, we are united to Christ. By faith, Christ takes our guilt for he suffered the punishment upon the cross that all of us deserve. By faith, Christ gives us his own righteousness. For Christ lived the perfect human life in our place. By faith, we are united to the Christ who, by the Holy Spirit, conforms us into his image, growing us in our ability to receive the gifts of God. By faith... We are united to the Christ who has defeated death and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, not only as fully God, but also as fully human, yet a resurrected human free from death and corruption and decay. By faith, Christ's present becomes our certain and glorious future. By faith, we become children, and so we become great in the kingdom of God. Do we really believe this, though? Do we really believe that all of this is a gift that we must simply receive like children? We must learn to open up our hands wide to what Christ has already secured for us. We must learn to receive the world with wonder, taking heart in the fact that the angels themselves, they beckon us into the true and certain delight that they already enjoy. We must set ourselves to the serious, hard, yet happy work of learning to receive all that Christ has already given to us. We must learn to turn and become like children. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you have given to us. Father, help us to receive. Help us to receive with glad and grateful hearts, trusting in the certainty of your love. Forgive us for all the ways we don't believe this love and we hold back from receiving those gifts. Help us to look to Christ. Help us to receive him and help us to see your love 
in his face. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.